Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Burntwine, erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Burntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. Welcome to the Drabblecast, episode 122. The Drabblecast is a weekly flash fiction audio podcast magazine that brings strange stories by strange authors to strange listeners, such as yourself. I'm your host, Norm Sherman. So the submission gates have closed for the Nigerian Scam Spam Story Contest. Next week we will announce the winner, read his or her story, and give directions on how to spam it out. If you want to read the submissions, you can find them in our discussion forums in the section labeled Second Annual Nigerian Scam Spam Competition, Entries, 100 Smackers to the Winner, and, of course, the honor of being crowned master of this esoteric, time-honored literary genre. I am so excited. Actually, I don't think I can hide it. In fact, I'm about to lose control, and I think I like it. Speaking of which, back from Jamaica, I'm on... A little sunburnt and still a little hungover. Editor Kendall is now blissfully wed, which leaves only one final Drabblecast editor on the market. Like a Polly Shore movie still on the shelves after a 95% off clearance sale at Walmart. Like a mislabeled half-dead hyena left over after a PetSmart puppy adoption rally. Like the very last banana of the bunch, sitting on your counter, squishy and brown like a potassium-rich turd. You don't want to throw it away because, I don't know... Maybe you'll make banana nut bread or something tomorrow when you get off work and... Ah, who are you kidding? When was the last time you baked? You're not going to make banana nut bread, and that thing is just going to keep sitting there until your girlfriend sees it, throws it away, and then yells at you for being a slob. Yep, that's me. Or at least that's the about me on my Match.com profile. Maybe it's time to update that thing. I thought chicks liked Polly Shore. Ah, well. Anyways, Drabble time. Drabbles are stories exactly 100 words. Send yours into Drabblecast at yahoo.com. This week's Drabble comes to us from Tim Shoebox Christ, and it's called The Most Wonderful Dream. Tim is a 6-foot, 4-inches, 290-pound, bemulleted maniac from Rochester, New York, who is under court order to stay away from chickens. He is best known as the man behind Worm Quartet, a one-man comedy synth-punk band that has appeared multiple times on The Dr. Demento Show and had the most requested song of the year in 2004 and 2005. He also appeared on VH1's Totally Obsessed in 2004, showcasing his love of Pac-Man, and appears in the new MC Lars album, This Gigantic Robot Kills. He's a founding member of the Funny Music Project, which is at thefump.com. Sounds like my kind of guy, aside from the fact that I've had this thing against Pac-Man ever since the son of a bitch got jacked up on power pellets and devoured my cousin Blinky. I'll never forgive that bastard. Tim's music, tour dates, and links can be found at his website, wormquartet.com. Last night, I had the most wonderful dream. I was spread out on the beach, tracing my name in the sand. Time stood still, and nothing mattered, except
except chasing my name over and over again in that soft, warm sand. But then I realized the tide was coming in and my name would soon be swallowed up. So I traced deeper, deeper, until my fingers touched the earth's core and I knew that my name would live on forever. I was immortal, eternal. Then I woke up and I had like a pound of cat litter embedded under my fingernails. Well, our feature story this week is called The Fallen and the Muse of the Street by Tim Pratt. Tim's short fiction has won a Hugo Award and lost a Nebula and a World Fantasy Award, at least in this dimension. He lives in Oakland, California with his wife and son. He's currently serializing a novella about his urban fantasy series character, Marla Mason. It's called Bone Shop, and you can find it online at marlamason.net slash boneshop, which we'll have in our show notes. So without further ado, The Fallen and the Muse of the Street by Tim Pratt. Pretty wild place, Madison said, stepping aside to avoid a drunk retching his way out of a strip club. Madison splashed through a puddle of rainwater and beer, breaking up the reflection of neon signs and streetlights. The air smelled of liquor, smoke, and sweating bodies. Samael snorted. Psh, Gomorrah was a wild place. This is a playground. Why couldn't we go to Bangkok? Madison took her arm. At six foot two, Samael topped him by four or five inches. They strode down the middle of the street, and the crowd of drunken pedestrians parted before them, unaware of the angels in their midst. Uh, Eight-year-old prostitutes make me uncomfortable, and Beelzebub is there testing plagues. You know how he feels about me. Besides, I like New Orleans. Bangkok's better, she said stubbornly. Samael had relinquished her armor and black wings in favor of a tank top and ragged denim shorts. She kept her sword strapped firmly to her back, but no mortal would see it. They never did, until the last moment. A red-bearded man with a dozen strands of beads hanging around his neck lurched toward them. "'Aren't you hot in that?' he asked, pointing at Madison's red velvet tuxedo. "'Oh, I've been hotter,' Madison said." They passed under a wrought-iron balcony packed with leering, shouting people. Dance music thundered out of the bar below. Hey! Someone called. Hey, Red! Why don't you show me your tits? Samael looked up and pointed to herself. The man on the balcony nodded and held out a handful of beads. Samael smiled. The man squawked and tumbled headfirst over the railing. The small portion of the crowd that noticed gasped. A moment later, the man stood, unharmed by his fall to the street, and let out a whoop of triumph. He high-fived random members of the crowd. People applauded. Madison tugged at her arm. Samael, we've talked about the value of subtlety. You didn't have to cushion him, she said, irritated. It was only a one-story drop. You are no fun anymore. I just don't want a repeat of our last vacation, okay? 
Samael rolled her eyes. Oh, come on. It was only a small village. They shouldered their way through the crowd, passing drunk college girls lifting their shirts for beads, hard-bitten middle-aged women drinking daiquiris, and serious bald men with video cameras. I mean, we could have at least come during Mardi Gras or something, Samael said. I hear it's a thousand times more. A quartet of black-clad teenagers passed them. A boy bumped into Samael hard, almost knocking her over. Madison hooked his fingers under the boy's leather collar and pulled. The boy squawked. His dyed black hair stuck up in rooster tufts, and silver rings glinted in his eyebrows and nose. Apologize, Madison said. Samael stood, smiling, her arms crossed. Whatever, man, screw that, the goth boy said, trying to twist out of Madison's grip. Madison pulled harder, and the boy gurgled as leather bit into his throat. Quit being a dick, Jimmy, one of the girls with him said. This guy's cool. Check out his tux. The girl's green eyes glinted with good humor and provided the only touch of color in her flower-white face. She wore a silver choker, a purple plastic skirt, and at least a dozen pairs of earrings. Something about her face tickled Madison's mind. Why would a mortal look so familiar? She made him think of television, but he'd only watched TV twice, both times certainly long before this girl's birth. All right, Jimmy said, standing on tiptoes to keep from strangling. I'm frickin' sorry, okay? Samael smiled. Not good enough. Lick my shoes and we'll call it even. No way! You've been walking through shit on Bourbon Street all night! A couple of his friends laughed behind their hands. The familiar-looking girl only smiled. Laughter makes me think of her, too, Madison thought. Who is she? Oh, Jimmy just wears that collar for looks, the girl said. He's never licked a shoe before. I'll tell you what. She took out two of her earrings. I think you'll like these. You can have them if you'll accept his apology and let us leave. She held out her hand to Samael, who took the earrings and examined them. Let him go, Samael said. These are pretty nice. Madison let go. Jimmy scurried to stand, scowling behind the green-eyed girl. Samael held out her hand so Madison could see. The earrings were tiny silver swords, long, thin-bladed, and intricately detailed. They looked remarkably similar to Samael's sword. Jimmy made those, the girl said. Madison looked at the goth boy. This little rat in black was a silversmith? Come on, Thalia. Jimmy said, and pulled the girl by the wrist. She waved jauntily with her free hand, and they disappeared into the crowd. Thalia. Madison remembered her now. I wonder how she knew I'd like swords, Samael said, putting the earrings in. Her ears weren't pierced, but she shoved them through the lobes anyway, drawing blood. She knew because she saw your sword. Don't be dumb. Humans never see my sword. Unless I want them to. She isn't human. Madison started through the crowd. Let's follow them. I wish I understood what you were talking about sometimes. Don't you recognize the name? Madison said, walking slowly through the darkened street. Jazz music played somewhere nearby, a trumpet wailing over the distant crowd sounds. 
Thalia? Come on, what, did you not study the other pantheons or something? Yeah, not really. I saw Gamora before it burned and went swimming during the deluge. You always studied too much. She snapped her fingers along with the music. She got the rhythm all wrong. I'll give you a hint. That girl, Thalia, has a few sisters. Urania, Calliope, Polymnia, uh, five others. I can't remember their names. Yeah, not ringing any bells, Samael said. She held a cup in each hand. She'd insisted on stopping for drinks, and now they'd probably never find Thalia. Madison didn't blame her, though. Wearing human flesh meant being able to get drunk, a pleasure that they seldom experienced. She's a muse. Thalia is usually associated with comedy, but the muses dabble in everything. In the beginning, they weren't even differentiated. Their individual personalities only developed over time. <laughs> oh, muse. Samael spat, then drained one of her drinks, throwing her cup into the gutter. Silly Greek posers. Boy, is our job more fun. Oh, agreed. But the thing is... Thalia isn't allowed to inspire anymore. Zeus has forbidden her to practice. Really? What'd she do? Oh, she inspired performers. She inspired some of them to death. There was this television show, you see, and... Wait, what's television? Madison gestured helplessly. Ah, it, it shows pictures. It's like a little play in a little box or something. I never liked plays. I never saw the point. Yeah, me either. Anyway, there was a television show with an ensemble cast, some of the best comedians around, I understand. Thalia inspired a few of the actors, but she drove them too hard. They died of drug overdoses, in car crashes, maybe some suicides, I don't really remember. That wasn't all of it. She worked with stand-up comics and authors. Many of them came to bad ends, burned out, killed by the success. Even the ones who didn't actually die fell apart in other ways, lost their gifts, became like ghosts of themselves. <laughs> Sounds like she was doing our job. Exactly. Zeus reprimanded Thalia for driving humans to destruction. She said it wasn't her fault, that she wasn't responsible, but Zeus had just come off of a bad love affair and he wasn't willing to listen. He forbade her to inspire humans anymore, and she ran away. Samael finished her other drink. So she kept on inspiring humans, but why would she get a guy to make jewelry if she's the muse of comedy? Madison shrugged. Maybe because no one would expect it. A jeweler isn't likely to become famous, so Zeus would never notice. I bet she's still dealing with performers, though. Just not famous ones. Samael stopped walking. Yeah, this is all very fascinating, but why are we following her? I mean, she's not even part of our pantheon. If she's disobeying authority and misbehaving, I don't know. I mean, shouldn't we, like, be supporting her or something? You know, I mean, just based on principle. Well, if we threaten to report her to Zeus, we'll have some leverage if we ever need anything from her. Samael put her arms around his neck and looked at him. 
Oh, Maddie, more blackmail. You've got dirt on half the immortal beings in the universe, and you never use any of it. What could you possibly need from a muse? You never know, he said, embarrassed. I mean, don't you believe in insurance? I'm the reason people need insurance, babe. She drew a fingernail down his chest. I've got an idea. Instead of chasing Thalia, let's find a room and a bed and enjoy having human bodies. We are on vacation, after all. Ooh, that does sound good. But I don't know, I, I hate to pass this up, you know? I mean, how often do two fallen angels meet a muse? It just seems like we should do something. We can. Tomorrow morning we'll look for Thalia. Why, if not to blackmail her? Maddie, I told you already, we're on vacation. We'll find her, we'll screw around with her for a while, we'll have fun, and she can't tell anyone in her pantheon if we mess with her, because she's practicing illegally. She grinned. Madison grinned back. You are the best. You're a close second. Andrew Jackson. Was he one of ours? Samael squinted at the statue in Jackson Square, shielding her eyes from the morning light. The smell of fresh-cut grass and flowers filled the air here, unlike the beer-soaked atmosphere a few blocks away. Madison turned from his contemplation of tarot readers and beggars. He squinted at the monument's plaque. Hmm. You know, I'm not sure. He did do some impressively nasty things to the Cherokee, but he wasn't all bad. He loved his wife. You know, I'll just never understand Yahweh's criteria for what makes a good person, Samael said, rolling her eyes upward. Madison chuckled. Come on, some of the shows are starting. Thalia's probably around. Samael shaded her eyes. She pointed to a bearded black man in a ragged camouflage coat. He gestured violently and shouted at a trash can. Is he a street performer? Ah, uh, I don't think so, Madison said, uncertainly. Angels, fallen or otherwise, weren't known for their appreciation of human art. I think he's a paranoid schizophrenic. That guy with a 15-foot-high unicycle, though, I'm pretty sure he's a street performer. They joined the crowd gathering around the unicyclist. He'd set up in front of a large church, and he exhorted the crowd to move in closer, off the church steps, because otherwise the police would arrest him for obstructing the entrance. Sounds like our kind of guy, Samael said. You really think Thalia will be here? Street performers are perfect for her. They aren't famous, they leave no artifacts, and they turn into nobodies as soon as the show's over. If Thalia's working with any performers, it'll be these, because Zeus would never notice. Why else would she come to New Orleans? So where is she? There, Madison said and pointed. Thalia, still in black but without her goth friends, stood on the edge of the crowd in the front row. The unicyclist ran a constant pattern, waiting for the crowd to get bigger. The tourists were laughing already, and Madison imagined their wallets bulging, ready to disgorge cash in exchange for a good show. He looked around. A jazz quintet played a few benches down, and a mime performed beyond them, fencing with a non-existent sword against an invisible opponent. 
neither had a crowd comparable to the unicyclists. Having a muse is good for business, Madison said. He and Samael stood near the back of the crowd where Thalia wouldn't notice them, but they had a decent view. Thalia stepped into the cleared space and spoke to the unicyclist, then kissed him on the cheek. He grinned, tipped his ragged top hat, and blew a whistle. Come closer! Come on! The unicyclist called to the audience. Thalia stepped back to watch. She bounced on the balls of her feet, delighted, clearly thriving on the audience. The performer mounted a small unicycle and pedaled, rolling to the edge of the crowd and back. He juggled a handful of oranges, then threw them into the audience. He cracked jokes and did stunts as the crowd grew larger. This is art, Samael said. She'd once said the same thing in the Louvre. So it seems. I don't pretend to understand myself. Should I throw my sword into the spokes of his wheel or something? Uh, let's just wait a while. He's just getting started. The show went on, and the crowd swelled. The unicyclist rode back and forth on a narrow board resting on two sawhorses. He balanced on a makeshift seesaw. He told stories about being arrested and made fun of tourists in the crowd, who laughed good-naturedly at being singled out. After about ten minutes, he called for volunteers to help him mount the fifteen-foot-high unicycle. Three men held it while he climbed, finally settling himself, arms extended for balance. Now? Samael asked. Soon. The unicyclist pointed to a small boy in the audience. Hey, kid, see those torches? Pick them up by the white ends, not the black ends, and throw them to me one at a time. The boy threw the torches underhand to the unicyclist, who caught them to oohs and ahs from the audience. The unicyclist lit the torches and juggled them while pedaling inches from the edge of the crowd. The audience applauded wildly. I got an idea, Madison said. He knelt and touched the little boy on the shoulder. He whispered without speaking, and the boy giggled. Madison stood up. What'd you do? Samael asked. What we always do. I made a suggestion. The boy ran into the square and shoved the unicycle. The rider shouted as he fell forward into the crowd. The torches flew from his hands. People screamed and tried to dodge out of his way. The fallen unicycle didn't hit anyone, but the rider tumbled to the edge of the church steps. One arm twisted under him unnaturally. (laughs) Well, that was entertaining, Samael said. Look at Thalia. The muse pressed her hands to her face and shook her head, as if denying what she saw. A few people helped the cyclist get up, but Thalia didn't approach him. Madison and Samael sauntered toward her. Hi, Thalia, Samael said. That was a hell of a show. I loved the grand finale. She looked at them, bewildered. What? I... We know who you are, muse, Madison said. Do you know us? Imagine me with wings, Samael said. Thalia took a step backward toward the wrought iron fence rounding Jackson Square. The sword might have tipped you off, Madison said. Didn't you wonder why she was wearing it? Thalia looked at them, wide-eyed. I don't know. People do weird things in New Orleans. I didn't associate swords with angels. Oh, you should. Samael said. We're quite fond of them. 
We're fallen angels, actually. Not so different from you. We both put ideas into people's heads. Thalia stiffened. Wait, you did this? Why? What have I ever done to you? Madison and Samael exchanged glances. Oh, you haven't done anything to us, Madison said. We do things to others, Samael said. Because we like to, because it's fun. Certainly you can relate. Thalia tightened her hands into fists. I am nothing like you. I help people. I inspire them. And you... She shook her head. We drive them to destruction. Like you do, if I recall. A matter of a few dead comedians. Your kind did that, she said bitterly. If anyone did. If they didn't do it to themselves. Zeus blamed me, but I made their lives better. Not like you. Well, you talk pretty big for someone who's been kicked out of her own has-been pantheon, Samael said. I mean, do you have any idea how many artists we have in hell? Do you think their painting or singing or whatever stupid crap they did keeps them from the fires? Oh, I, I'm almost certain it does, Thalia said. Inside, where it counts, I'm sure it does. Don't you have some other artists to attend to, Thalia? Madison said casually. Thalia crossed her arms over her chest. What are you guys going to do? Well, we were going to follow you around, Samael said. You know, ruin some careers, tempt a few artists to more interesting pursuits, see how long it takes you to crumble. And then we'll probably report you to Zeus. Why? Thalia backed up against the iron fence. Well, because we're on vacation, Madison said. Yeah, it beats the hell out of sitting in a bar. Thalia drew herself up. She barely topped five feet, but she seemed much taller for a moment. For the first time, Madison felt uneasy. The muses were old, maybe even older than he was. No, Thalia said. I won't allow it. Not this time. Oh, how are you going to stop us? Samael said. Inspire us to death? Good idea, Thalia said. Something hit Madison in the back of his head, stunning him. Everything went fuzzy, and he fell to his hands and knees. While in human form, he had human vulnerabilities. When his vision cleared, he saw a silver trombone lying on the bricks, a head-shaped dent in the bell. He looked up, groggily. The white-painted mime ran toward Samael. She drew her sword, snarling. The mime made a sword-drawing motion in the air. Samael lifted her sword, startled to parry his intangible strike. With a clang and a shower of sparks, her sword spun away. The mime extended his empty hand as if it held a foil, and a drop of blood appeared at the base of Samael's throat. This can't be happening, Madison thought, and then a clarinet bounced off of his head. The members of the jazz band bore down on him. None of the tourists walking and talking around them seemed to notice. The protective coloration of the supernatural, Madison thought clinically. 
A black man jammed a flute into Madison's stomach like a cop wielding a nightstick. Madison doubled over, coughing. We are going to get you for this, Thalia, Madison said. He struggled to stand upright. You, you'll never get away with this. You think so? Thalia said. Because this is only half what I'm going to do to you. A caricaturist rose from a nearby table and flung sheets of paper and sharpened colored pencils at Madison and Samael. The wind blew the paper into Madison's face, blinding him. He heard the clang of a guitar striking something solid, and the back of his head exploded into pain. His eyes filled with white light, and he fell. Madison opened his eyes and looked up at fluffy white clouds. His skull thundered. I see a rocking horse, he thought. And there, in that big cloud, a dragon. He moaned and sat up, touching the back of his head. His fingers came away, bloody. Shattered instruments, paper and pencils, littered the bricks around him. He crawled toward Samael, who lay prone on the ground, and touched her shoulder. Someone had hit her on the forehead with a saxophone. The imprint of sax keys stood out on her skin. Madison blinked. Everything around him looked so strange. Instead of seeing people and buildings as he always had, he saw their essential shapes, their underlying structures. He admired the church's spires and noted the shifting of light and shadows on the ground. Oh, must be the head injury, he thought. Samael opened her eyes. Oh, bitch. Let's get out of this skin and go after her. She can't knock us out when we're ethereal. She stood and tottered toward her sword. Madison sat on the bricks, frowning. He picked up a red-colored pencil and looked at it, then at Samael. The pencil almost exactly matched the shade of her hair. He reached for a stray sheet of paper. Samael returned with her sword. Come on, we have to move fast before there's an ambush. She said she was going to do something else, right? What do you think she's planning? Madison scribbled something with the pencil. Samael looked around suspiciously, tapping her foot. What are you doing, Maddie? Come on, we got to get going. Hold on, he muttered, drawing furiously. Just, just wait a minute, okay? I want to finish this. Finish what? There's no time. Samael swung her sword in angry little arcs. Come and see, Madison said, lifting the pencil from the page. Samael knelt, frowning. Madison had drawn a picture of her, barely sketched in, but capturing the lines of her face and the fall of her hair. Well, uh, what do you think? Madison said, his voice anxious as if the answer mattered very much. Samael looked at the picture. She chewed on one long red fingernail. That's pretty good, she said.
Don't mess with the muse. That bitch has crazy eyes. Well, it's story feedback time. Harken back with me to episode 117, Curse of the Alien's Wife by Bruce Boston. And the overall reaction to this one in our discussion forums wasn't that great. It wasn't completely loathed, but on a scale from 1 to 10, 1 being Polly Shore and 10 being anything other than Polly Shore, it landed at about 4. Delphed said, I started listening to this story and I couldn't deal with it. Sorry, Drabblecast isn't the place for this at all. Ever. I'm sure it was wonderfully funny and weird, but... Mr. Tweedy said, I think the explicit warning was misplaced, as is the description of the story as erotica. All we have here is insinuation and implication, which most kids probably wouldn't get anyway. In retrospect, I agree with him here. I'll make sure that next time we label an episode explicit, that mess'll get you pregnant. Mr. Tweedy went on to say, Meh. The story was presented well, but it was boring. Neither the narrator nor the alien lover had any dimensionality or deep motives. The idea of the woman being literally addicted to her lover could either be tragic or touching if there was some context surrounding it, but there wasn't, and consequently, I had no feelings about it. Same for the alien. Who is he? What does he want? Phenopath enjoyed it at least, saying, I groaned when I heard the warning. Not like, ooh, erotica. More like, oh no, not erotica. However, I liked the story once the sex was out of the way. I think that she loved him. If we had a weekly six-word story contest, that right there would win it this week. I think that she loved him. Almost congrats, Phenopath. We do have a weekly 100-character TwitFix story contest, though, and this week's winner is Tom Baker. Or, as we know him on the discussion forums, St. Tom, the patron saint of laser tag and woodpeckers. Just twat out his story from Twitter. Start following the Drabblecast there to catch it and others like it each week. The Drabblecast kick-ass donor of the week is Mr. Thomas Canfield. Thomas is the author of the great story that we ran back in episode 94 called Squidges, and his phobias run to politicians, lawyers, and oil company executives, while his passions circle around dogs and beer. Thanks, Thomas. You, the man. Unfortunately, we can't give you an official tax write-off, per se, for your donation, but we can, and will, call the IRS and tell them what a swell guy you are. And you know what? That great offer goes for anyone out there who donates to us via the PayPal credit card links on our website, drabblecast.org. Who knows? Maybe the IRS will set you up with your hot roommate or something. If not, you'll at least have helped support a show that you really like and you listen to every week. We rely on your generosity to pay authors for their creative and entertaining work, also to license music, handle production costs, keep things floating in web space, and to pay people for writing email spam. You probably already know all this, but I'm going to go ahead and say it anyway. The Drabblecast is produced under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license, which means you can't change any of it, you can't sell any of it, but you can share it, you can rip it, you can burn it, meditate on it to seek greater enlightenment, you can use it to teach Mongolian orphans how to speak English, or use it in your church revival to either cast out or firmly entrench demonic spirits into your congregation. Or you can play it backwards and listen to our zany, madcap, clandestine communist propaganda messages. 
Or you can memorize every episode word for word, so that in the event of a nuclear holocaust, you can recite the Drabblecast by candlelight to monks, scribes, and muttering mutants deep down in the cavernous network of dank underground caves that survivors such as yourself will eventually come to know as home. Then, after a few millennia, the vile, bloated, nearly transparent, and completely eyeless, evolved forms of your repulsive offspring will emerge from various cracks and crevices along some hillside, hastily claiming assortments of lush, fertile soil to build townships upon, before trading pelts and pottery with each other alongside a swiftly moving river that drains its murky, prehistoric waters into the silent seas of some dark, distant, lifeless land. Indeed, from their moist subterranean tunnels, they will bring with them the songs of their ancestors, a rich oral tradition of Drabblecast folklore taught and passed down throughout the ages by their sacred council of elders. They will no doubt develop numerous stylized forms of melismatic plain chant during the holy days, when they will be devoutly reciting hollowed passages from the blessed, leather-bound transcription of the Drabblecast archives, which have, at this point, of course, come to be known in the strange, gurgling tongue of your descendants as the Lutahawa Atui. Of course, as any fan of the Drabblecast is well aware, these bizarre, ancient, and elaborate Drabble runes shall at best serve only to promote complete and utter confusion. Doubly so here, as the literal interpretation of these stories will undoubtedly be embraced by many of the religious leaders that guide the fundamentalists of your remote, hairless progeny. These scriptures will also be construed in countless conflicting fashions by various tribes of your abominable inbred cousins who, along with their androgynous, web-footed shaman, densely populate the small archipelago to the south. Ultimately, and most unfortunately, these disagreements will rapidly worsen, complementing a series of bad foreign policy initiatives that will allow for escalating sectarian violence, the hasty testing and stockpiling of nuclear armaments, and the eventual and seemingly inevitable unholy Armageddon that must always take place in order for the cycle to begin anew. Our staff is made up of co-editors Kendall Marchman, Luke Coddington, and yours truly, Norm Sherman, reminding all of you serious bald men out there to not forget your video cameras. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Bartha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz and how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. 
So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts.